The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Well, my clock says it's just 8.30 or maybe 8.31. We have maybe a couple more people still coming in. Let's just wait another 30 seconds or so, and then we'll get started. Okay, well good, perhaps things are stabilizing now and people coming in and if a few more join us, that's great. So it's nice to see everyone again today. This is the second session on the Kalama Sutta and we're gonna be moving on to some of the specific topics today. So let me just start by welcoming everyone back and if it happens that anyone is joining for the first time today, um, welcome also in particular you'll see how it uh, goes along as we mentioned before we'll be offering the teachings for the first hour the interactive teachings and then in case anyone needs to um, move on we'll have a guided meditation from 9 30 to 10 that specific time but it will tie in with the teaching so of course we encourage you to stay for that it's, it is part of the class so just as a reminder when we first met on Saturday we got kind of an overview of what the sutta is about and its focus on our very intimate question of what is trustworthy and how can we bring ourselves to this path and know uh, for ourselves how to walk it and how to um, slowly grow in wisdom along the way. So, um, I think with that, and, and then we also, of course, talked about the uh, how to read suttas in general. Diana gave a very nice overview of um, some of the parts of suttas and how we can relate to them, and the use of um, repetition, also called pericope, uh, these cut-and-paste sections that appear throughout the suttas, and how they play a role also in this particular sutta. Um, so then I will pass it on to Diana to delve into the first of our specific topics on what is actually reliable. Great, thank you, Kim. Yeah, so um, just to recap, right, we know the Kalamas, they go to the Buddha and they say, you know, who should we trust or who's telling the truth? All these different teachers come through town, giving their own teachings, disparaging others. We've heard a good report of you, quote unquote, and this is one of these pericopes. This good report is all throughout the suttas. We see this. Um, so, how about you, Mister Gotama? What uh, what do you think that we should trust or put our trust in, or who's telling the truth? And I'll start by saying, for me, I think it's interesting that what the Buddha doesn't do. Right. He doesn't start immediately giving his own teachings like, oh, you know, I know what's best here. You know, listen to this. He doesn't disparage any other teachers. He doesn't say, well, you know, don't listen to them. They don't know what they're talking about. And um, in a completely different setting with a different set of teachers, for those of you who know this, it's um, Diginakaya 2, the Samanyapala 
Sutta, there's um, the Buddha does the same type of thing where he hears what other teachers have said, but he does not disparage them. He's not saying, oh, these other people, they don't know what they're talking about. So both here in the Kalama Sutta and then in completely different setting, he does that same thing where he doesn't disparage others. And he doesn't disparage the Kalamas for asking the question. He doesn't, you know, kind of look at them like, really, are you asking me this? Instead, he normalizes their experience. He, in my view, teaches them, uh, treats them with respect, saying, essentially, of course you're perplexed. I think uh, in Bikabodhi's translation, it's translated as, it is fitting for you to be perplexed. So, of course. So he starts by this, by kind of like creating the conditions in order for some teachings. And then he interacts with them as opposed to just jumping right into giving a lecture or here, I know what's best. Clearly, I know better than you. Oops, sorry, this is my phone. That's And um, instead... He encourages the Kalamas to get engaged, to um, test out the teachings that they've heard. Instead of just passively sitting back and listening to what other people have told and trying to determine, well, which um, teaching should I believe? Instead, he's essentially saying, what I kind of like to say is he's saying, roll up your sleeves and engage with the teachings or with what you've heard. So he starts by saying, when you know for yourselves, this encouragement for the Kalamas to take responsibility and to not um, passively just receive, but to trust some of their own wisdom. And then when he says, when you know for yourselves, These things are unwholesome. And some of you may know this word unwholesome is um, akusala. This word akusala, we see this all throughout um, the Buddhist teachings, can be translated as unwholesome, unskillful. I've seen it as unhealthy. I've also seen it as unhelpful. So just this generic word uh, akusala which means that things that aren't supportive of where you want to go. So when you know for yourselves, these things are unwholesome, blameworthy, that is others would uh, um, not approve of this, censored by the wise, we could say maybe criticized by others, and if accepted and undertaken, lead to harm and suffering then you should abandon them. So in this, um, in this uh, teaching here, the Buddha again is moving away from adopting beliefs and towards notice the consequences of actions. Or, and I'll use this word actions to mean that um, this, this uh, phrase starts out, when you know for yourself these things. So the in Pali, the word is dhamma, the same um, word that we use for doctrine, for the teachings. But sometimes this word dhamma means things. So 
we can insert there when these views, these actions, these beliefs, these um, point of view, or, you know, like uh, attitudes. So that's something for, in my view, the Buddha is using kind of this generic word here as just an encouragement for us to test all kinds of things, everything. With is it are they unwholesome, blameworthy, censored by the wise, and if accepted and are taken, lead to harm and suffering? Then you should abandon them. And then, of course, the opposite is true too: that if they don't lead to all of these, then you should adopt them as opposed to abandon them. So something else that the Buddha does is, um, so he gives them this teaching, when you know for yourselves that the consequences are deleterious or harmful, not going where you want them to go. But he um, continues to build on what the Kalamas already know. What do you think? When greed arises in a person, is it for their welfare or for their harm? So he wants to start with something that they can all agree on. And so this assumes that uh, people will agree (laughs) that greed and hatred and delusion leads to unhelpful states and leads to harm and leads to suffering. And in my mind, part of the reason why he starts there is if they had said, well, we're not sure, then maybe he would have gone down different teachings. But if they said, yes, okay, we know this, that greed arises, it's not for a person's welfare, it's not for their benefit, it's not for their harm. But then again, he points to something really tangible, measurable, um, literal, physical, that can be measured, pointing away from um, just listening to what somebody has told you and things that you can actually see. A friend of mine used to talk about this. He said that he was mostly interested into those things he could bite, <laughs> which for me is kind of a funny thing, but he was just important to, you know, tangible physical things. So a greedy person destroys life, takes what is not given, transgresses with another's partner spouse, and speaks falsehood. And encourages others to do likewise. So not only that one behaves in a way that leads to harm and suffering, but encouraging other people to do this also. So the consequences of having a mind of greed or of hatred or of delusion is put into the context of it leads to harm not only for oneself, But here it's really pointing to harming others. That ethics, right? Ethics is really about our relationship with others and the way that we interact with others. And pointing to that this undermines our communities. If you're taking what is not given from others or transgressing with another's partner or um, killing others, of course. So for some of you who are familiar with the Buddhist teachings, will recognize that there's four of the five precepts here. The last one to um, 
not to become intoxicated is not here. So I'll just say a little bit about this, that before, this is um, not uncommon, that there are many places in the suttas where there's only the four rather than all five. And scholars and ethicists um, come up with all kinds of reasons for this. And some of them might be that the inclusion of the last one about uh, alcohol or, you know, abstention from intoxication and alcohol might be um, a later addition. So there might, this might be, you know, these are things that we might ever really know, but that might be the later that became a problem and something that needed to be included into the Buddhist teachings. And so it got added on, but it didn't get added on everywhere. But another reason is that these first four of the five precepts, to not destroy life, to not take what is not given, to not transgress with another's spouse, and to not speak falsehood, really point to the community, really point to harm that one is doing to others. Becoming intoxicated may or may not cause harm to others, but these other four do without question cause harm to others. So a real emphasis on um, taking care of the community. So lead to harm and suffering, not only for oneself, but for the for others. So in this way, so the Buddha, when he's asked about which teacher should we believe or who's telling the truth or who should we trust, what should we place our trust in? He's pointing it to things that are more tangible, that you can see and experience, and specifically to look at consequences. What are the consequences of some of your thoughts? What are the consequences of following beliefs? What are the consequences of your actions? So something a little more tangible. So with that, as a, just talking about this little bit in the, well, maybe it's not so little, it takes up quite a lot of space in the Kalama Sutta. Um, and maybe I'll end with this, that it could be, we might interpret this as the Buddha in his skill as a teacher doing a little bit of an Aikido move, that is, where he gets asked one thing, who should we believe? And he does a little bit of a move and saying, well, look at your behavior as a way to see this is what's important. And this helped make this uh, increased ethical sensitivity might be the way forward for you, as opposed to saying exactly here's who you should believe. So now I'll turn it over to uh, Ying. Thank you, Diana. So with uh, that um, piece of a teaching, uh, what we'll do right now is to um, get you together into breakout rooms. And uh, in your small group, uh, we'll discuss a little bit of uh, what this is for you. And so we'll have two prompts, um, basically two questions. And... um, The first one uh, is to maybe recall or uh, remember an uh, experience or example uh, at a time where the uh, uh, specific actions, whether it's in the list of uh, precepts, ethics that um, Diana mentioned, uh, or maybe in the general 
um, ethical arena. Um, when a specific action have helped you learn what might be skillful and unskillful, uh, what might uh, or the translation that uh, Diana mentioned, wholesome or unwholesome. And so think of um, an example, a real life example, a real life experience. It could be yours, could be something you observed. And so that's the first question. Um, and, um, and then uh, alongside of that, uh, in the teaching that the Buddha mentioned, knowing this for yourself. And so also contemplate what is your relationship with this mode of learning? which is really based on your own experience, knowing it for yourself. And so these two questions are kind of related, um, but I would uh, maybe suggest we start with the first one, which is uh, think of an example, and then think about how this helped you learn um, using your own experience. And so David has gotten us all into um, the small groups. And uh, when you get into the small group, I would um, maybe recommend you start um, based on the alphabetical order of your Zoom name. And <laughs> the first one start and then the rest, um, you know, doesn't have to be following that order. But it kind of... Um, uh, would be nice to have someone start, <laughs> start the circle. Okay. Um, thank you. Well, how that went for you? Um, any questions, insights, and are just uh, something that you share shared within the group? And um, you can use that raise hand button again. Um, that's under participants. Um, if you hover over your own name, you see more. Um, and then if, if you're on iPad and phone, you can do the dot, dot, dot on yourself. Um, and then you find the raise hand button. See if anyone would like to share a few words. Okay, Jennifer, please. And and just before sharing, we should either maybe <clears throat> pause the recording or just let people know that the recording's continuing. Um, so be careful with what you share or Who's controlling the recording, Diana, um, to record or not to record? Uh, you're muted, Diana. Thank you. That, um, of course, our um, objective is to um, upload the audio, not the video, not the video. So only the sound. And this is the equivalent of passing the mic around if you were actually here at uh, IMC. So um, I don't know, maybe I'll let each speaker uh, decide what they want to do, and then we'll hope for the best that I can pause and unpause. I mean, saying that I can, but whether I'll return to whatever, this will work fine. 
So if people want to say, Jennifer, is it okay if we record? Totally fine if you want to record. Thank you. Um, Thank you for asking. So, um, wow, I had a great group. Um, What's wonderful about this is I have a feeling everyone's coming away saying, wow, that was the best group. Um, I think one of the things that that I learned through this process is just the power of learning that is grounded in experience um, and just the deeply respectful uh, framework for learning, both that the Kalama Sutta is showing us, but also that you are producing through this very model of the breakout rooms, right? If you were just lecturing to us and we were all taking notes, that would be a different mode of learning. So I'm really, I'm really appreciating that. Thank you. Oh, wonderful. I, I kind of lived experience right there. <laughs> Great. So Chris um, from San Francisco. Thank you. I um, was hoping someone else would step forward. Um, I can't stop talking. So <laughs> you know, this, uh, this uh, environment, certainly um, I'd, I, I was just describing to the group. It feels we're working or thinking or observing what's our process, reading the sutra and what we're thinking about, who our teachers are. I mean, I've done all those issues of hearsay and inferential reading, logic and teaching. I mean, I've done it all and I've learned from it all. It's been sort of, in a sense, my North star. I kept just leaning against teachers or learning from people. So it seems to have moved me in a good place. I mean, I'm here in this class, so it's gotta be good you know it sort of led me in this direction i'm really the zoom the zoom teachings i spent a lot of time this weekend just going over the sutra and then i i actually actually listened to kim's recent class on um on um right view right understanding which was something i've never really looked at and that really plays into this column sutra like what do i believe what do i think how i'm going to move forward and this sutra i've read it or heard a number of times that it's just coming forward in a really, really strong way right now. And having this Zoom platform, I'm able to hear from other people's point of views and it's, it enlightens me. It lifts me up. It's very intimate. It's that Mahayana idea of Indra's net. We're all kind of reflecting each other. We're gems on this net. It's really coming forth in this process. So thank you again for having this um, group. And I think I've drunk the Kool-Aid. <laughs> nice. Thank you. Yeah. And, and, and because I just want to say that because the fifth precept against taking intoxicants isn't here, you're in good place. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, Jerry, that may be the last question we'll have for right now. Go ahead, Jerry. Um Somewhat coincidental, uh, once again, as the Dharma, as I said last time, is for me. Uh, but I thought, no, I could send someone a note. Uh, when I started with MBSR, we were told, don't believe anything that, the, that we're telling you. It's only true if it's true for you. And I always was told that that's a Buddhist type of belief. And I was wondering in what sutras I could find that, which is a little, a little, uh, unawareness of me because it's actually in the sutra that we're studying and I didn't realize it. Uh, I find it again because of my own, I don't know, issues, but that, and it happens to be true no matter what a teacher tells you, it's only deeply true 
if it's been integrated and it's actually deeply true for yourself. But I find that uh, it's just extremely respectful and liberating that nothing, I don't have to buy anything unless, unless there's evidence coming from inside of me. I'm grateful for that. Thank you. Nice. Thank you. So with that, um, David, uh, back to you. Yeah, we wanted to just, you know, uh, another brief teaching section, talk a little bit about wise speech and look at it from a couple different perspectives. Uh, the, the first one is just to notice that the, the, the issue of wise speech creates sort of a grand arc, of, a grand narrative arc for this discourse. And something as we go through, we like to draw attention to in these, this series of courses is um, study aspects of these materials, of these ancient texts. And last time Diana talked about repeating passages, this copy and paste uh, thing that happens, pericopes and their use, the importance of um, creating forms that were memorizable, chantable, and that in the chanting of them, in the repeating of them, in the memorizing, there was a re rewiring of uh, neural circuitry that was part of part of practice, um, and similarly, these have these suttas. They have their container. Uh, sorry, they have their contents, but they also frequently have a narrative arc. And frequently, there's great beauty in the narrative arc. And a lot of times, there's a lot of um, thrust of the fundamental teaching in that same narrative arc. And for example, here the kalamas are concerned about whether teachers are speaking truthfully or untruthfully. But they're also, I think, concerned or disturbed maybe by the fact that the teachers would appear to be engaged in unwise speech. Not only do they, um, not only do they aggressively or assertively propose their own views, their own um, opinions, but they denigrate and um, um, dismiss the, the teachings of others. And they seem to do so in a way that's divisive which is one of the hallmarks of unwise speech, things that are untruthful, divisive, abusive, things that maybe are just not worth debating. And this seems to be part of what has, has sort of confused the Kalamas. The Buddha, as Diana pointed out, understands this, that they have, a, they have good reason to be confused, not only because there's a question of truth, but also because the speech is unwise. And the way it lands in there, the cognitive dissonance that creates is something worth paying attention to. So it's part of the grand arc. The Buddha doesn't take the bait. He doesn't himself engage in the same sort of unwise speech. The whole discourse is an exercise in wise speech, not only how the Buddha speaks to the Kalamas, but how he encourages them to speak to themselves, to engage with their own experience the sort of voices they take to what comes up in their experience. All of this is part of a training in wise speech. So, and then within the, within the kind of looking down from the grand narrative into the, um, into the, into wise speech, wise speech turns up as Diana pointed out in each of these repeated phrases. And in each case, it's a way to, um, to interrogate in one's own experience, the relationship between consequences and the roots of action. And the Buddha, again, without engaging in unwise speech, implicitly suggests 
that any speech that's unwise by definition must come from greed, hatred, or delusion to give the defilements those rather um, brutal general characterizations. But any speech that's unwise, of which they've had a taste from these various ascetics that visit them, must come from these, these roots. This is part of his teaching, and it can be understood in our own um, interrogation or investigation of our, um, what urges us to speak and the way we speak. Whenever we speak in a way that's untruthful, that's divisive, that's abusive, or that's just engaging in idle chatter, gossip, and debate that doesn't have any purpose to be, to, to happen, we're engaging in unwise speech, and we can feel how that feels in the heart. And instead of telling us that, or telling the Kalamas that, but, but us many generations later, he actually leads us through a process. And this will turn up, spoiler alert, in the, the homework for this week. We sort of take wise speech as a, as a way to pay a little attention, as the Buddha sort of suggests here, that we can do. Um, and I think, even though that brings us to a little bit ahead of time, I'll stop there. I think that's a good place to stop, and it leaves a little time in a few minutes to take some, to maybe take some additional questions or have some additional discussion. So let me pass it back to Diana. Great. Thank you, David. Yes, it can be really helpful to look at, kind of, as David said, the narrative arc. So there's the specifics of the sutta as well as kind of what's, uh, what's the kind of the container or the context that's being hung. So now we'd like to open it up to you guys again. To um, We didn't at the beginning today talk about um, some of the homework for last week, or I say last week, it was just Saturday. Uh, um, the question of what do you hold to be authoritative? So here's an opportunity you might um, want to comment on that. Or what was it like to read the sutta again? And maybe some questions about wise speech or maybe some general questions about the sutta. We'd love to hear like how, how, um, how this is landing for you, some of the questions you have, maybe some aha moments or something like that. And we'll do the, uh, I use this expression, the blue hand that uh, we'll use if you can raise your hand in, um, in Zoom because we can't um, all see the screen, so we can't necessarily see your physical hand. Yes, Laura. Oh, Diana, wh um, when I was reading over the sutta again, it uh, dawned on me, as you pointed out this morning, that the kalama is, uh, must be at a set, certain level of practice because practicing, you know, I didn't broke any of the, and it wasn't until I, you know, The meditation, oh, unskillful. You know, it, it really, you have to have the experiential, I mean, you really have to clear your mind and settle it down before you realize something is unwholesome. So it's kind of interesting that the 
Buddha just talking general about non-greed and, you know, the four precepts, but there's all these other examples of unwholesome and wholesome acts. And, you know, anyways, I just want to point kind of the sutta, in a sense, make it really general, but in practice, it's actually very um, specific to the person. So I don't know whether you can comment on that or not. <laughs> yes, uh, thank you, Laura. You broke up a little bit there, but I think I, um, I understand what you're talking about. Um, for me, one thing that's uh, noteworthy is that uh, the Buddha says, when you know that these things are blameworthy or criticized by the wise, so it's not to rely entirely on yourself, but it's to re- recognize that people that have wisdom, that have um, maybe some spiritual maturity, also would not condone or promote that behavior. So for me, the way that I think about this, is this something that you feel like you'd want to hide? Does this feel like something you don't want to be in the newspapers, you don't want other people to know? Then that can be a clue. So yes, it is personal, but it's not entirely personal. It's to, it's, for me, there's a real emphasis on community here too. So... But uh, And also, I'll um, appreciate what you said about um, that he asks them, you know, is, does, if a person has greed, hatred, or delusion, does that lead to harm or suffering? So it, there is already a certain amount of spiritual maturity or awareness. And for me, the way I'm interpreting that is probably if they had no interest in the spiritual life or doing the right thing, quote-unquote, they would not have gone to talk to the Buddha. So maybe there's a selection bias. Those people that are in the audience that are talking to the spiritual leader are the people that care about spiritual things. If there were other people that didn't care, they probably weren't there. So that's the way that I'm thinking about it. David? And just also on Laura's point, which I think is a really good question. Um, another way to read some of the discourses is that what happens here, if you imagine this actually happening, it takes time, and I like to think that it's possible that this, the, this question and answer is actually takes the form of guided meditation. So it's not just telling them this. It's actually, as, as you suggest, Laura, each in their own, with their individual temperament, their individual personal history, their role in the community, they're each invited to go through this exercise, dipping it into, their, into a meditative practice. It's not separate from that. It's integrated with that. And in a way, it captures some of the spirit of our endeavor here in this course, which is to integrate the study, the theory, with the actual practice of meditation and what to do with what comes up in meditation. Thank you. Thank you, David. Do uh, Ying or Kim, do either of you have something you'd like to add? Yeah, maybe I just say that uh, this process of a knowing for ourselves is also a gradual process. You know, I think the Kalamas might know something about what the Buddha said. And, and so um, that allowed him to have some trust to what the, the Buddha had to say. And, but then through the um, practice and through 
working with, uh, walking the path, uh, that knowing becomes more and more clear and there may be different aspects of the practice that will come along uh, to shed lights, uh, what could be trusted, yeah. And Kim, I saw that you unmuted yourself, but maybe. Uh... <laughs> I don't have much to add. This is all good. Okay. Okay. So, Lori. Shall I unmute you or would you? Okay. Oh, there you go. Thank you. Um, over the last week, I was thinking that. <clears throat> One of the reasons I was drawn so deeply and strongly to the Dharma was that it articulated what I'd learned through my own experience in the School of Hard Knots, more so than any other philosophy or religion or psychology that I'd ever encountered. And the Kalama Sutta, which I encountered, I connected with kind of early on specifically does this. It's a primary example of teaching what I had learned about trustworthiness or whatever in the school of hard knocks. But I get concerned that um, sometimes I might interpret suttas to support or justify my own ideas. And So what I've been thinking this week of the value of this specific class is it shows me how to conduct an investigation into not just the sutta, but into my own mental processing of the sutta. Um, It's it's showing me how to investigate, like... um, the level of detail, how hel- how helpful it is to not just read it once and kind of nod or shrug, but to investigate it in great detail and read it more than once. And um, it, it's, it's just astounding. Like um, if you read this sutta four times in a week, you come up with four messages that that kind of layer and or interrelate. So um, this has always been one of my favorite suttas, and it had some big message for me. Now I think it probably has a dozen important messages for me. So I appreciate this class. And, and the, I don't know, I don't like to use the word technique, but kind of the approach um, that you're leading us through um, in how to engage with a sutta. Thank you, Laurie. You're pointing to something uh, which makes me quite happy that uh, Ying, Kim, David, and I, uh, we talk about this a lot. Like, wow, every time you revisit a sutta, there's something new there. It's that seems like the richness the depth is incredible that each time we come there and, and the four of us, we've discovered that we learn from each other so much that like, okay, I had this one idea, but you know, somebody else has another idea and you're like, Oh, I hadn't thought of it that way. So there's so much depth in that way too, to share it with others. And so, well, that's another reason that classes like this are so valuable to all of us participants. I, for one, live in a place where there are, 
are no teachers, there are no classes. And without offerings like this, I would be completely on my own to interpret the Dhamma in a way <laughs> it would read how I wanted it to read. So this is wonderful. It's a real it's a real gift to those of us who live out in dispersed areas. Oh, and where do you live, Lori? In Wisconsin. Oh, nice, nice. Yeah, that's Wisconsin is far away so, from the Bay Area. I'm sorry. Yeah. Yes, go, David. I just I love uh, Lori's contribution, and I just wanted to say something really interesting in what you say that I think turns up in the Kalama Sutta. We live in a world right now, I have to make reference to any number of current events, which would make it even clearer, in which things like implicit bias and confirmation bias are, are really you know, significant challenges individually, culturally, socially, politically. And I do think that this practice provides a way, particularly with guidance and community working together, to, to address some of those, you know, some of the kind of hardwired um, constraints that make our actions less than entirely skillful or that, you know, end up in harm to ourselves and to others and to the community. So you, I think you point to something really significant in this manner of, of doing this kind of uh, study and practice that uh, draws, you know, deeply on what the Dharma, the power of the Dharma's promise. Thank you, David. And maybe um, I'll say, if you're catching the bug of sutta study, um, maybe I'll, I'll invite Kim to say just a word or two. You're teaching something about sutta study right now, Kim. Let's. Uh, do you want to say something? Uh, yeah, I have a workshop coming up on uh, July 26th, which is a Sunday. I'm calling it the Poly Canon Workshop for, and it's essentially just a. Uh, it's not sutta study so much, although we will read a couple of texts, but it provides an overview of the Pali Canon. You know, we talk about this thing. This is where all these suttas come from. What are the major books of the Pali Canon? Why were they organized in that way? How can we relate to the strange language in the suttas? I found that um, as people get into sutta study, they start to maybe have questions like this, and it's not so easy to get an overview like that. So... Uh, we'll be providing a link um, in the follow-up email if that is of interest. So, thank you. I see some thumbs up. That's nice. <laughs> <laughs> great, great. Okay, so um, we'll be going into a guided meditation, but before we go there, I wanted to say a little bit about um, some homework, some encouragement of things to do. One is to read the sutta yet one more time. Um, maybe you'll discover some new things. And maybe you might be interested to see if there are some other translations and you can uh, see how that affects you. Um, we might be able to put in the email that comes out or maybe we could put in the chat box. I haven't discussed this with my co-teachers where you might find alternative translations that are freely available on the web. I think um, this sutta, because it's so well-known, it, probably if you just Googled it, would show up um, a number of different places. But um, for those of you... Yes. I just say it, it was uh, in the last email that... Oh, thank you. ...through the class where you can find the different translations. Oh, great. Thank you, Ying. I guess I didn't read that clearly or I forgot. Thank you, Ying. 
And then here's some practice, some practice to consider. So what if you spend the rest of the today and all day tomorrow intentionally using speech to create social harmony, to create concord, to create people coming together, to help people feel like they belong, to help create a sense of community, to use your speech in a way that is of benefit to not only yourself, but to other people. So this um, means to refrain from saying anything that might be divisive or harsh or untrue, but also to specifically say things that are helpful and supportive and create community. Of course, being authentic, of course, not saying things that aren't true, but just to incline the mind to what could be said here that appreciate, that helps bring people together. It could be as simple as saying, oh, that was a great idea. Thank you. You know, just let people know that uh, you heard them and that they kind of want to participate and communicate. Or maybe it's uh, listening really attentively kind of helps create some community. But also, how can we use our speech as a way to create harmony and concord? So if you'd... Now we'll um, go into a guided meditation. Um, and I'll uh, hand it over to Kim. Thank you. Okay, thank you.